0: This is an ABC podcast. There there is no other alternative for a Prime Minister than the rule of law.
1: To Scott Morrison, stop dealing with this as a political problem and start doing the right thing. Not so much a tin ear as a wall of concrete. Having children doesn't guarantee a conscience.
0: Women who have put up with this rubbish and this crap for their entire lives. I've had a gut for I have had an absolute gutful.
1: Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RN Drive and Afternoon Briefing. And I'm Frank Kelly from RM Breakfast, and soon we're going to be joined in the party room
2: by Peter Harcher, party animal and political and international editor of the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age, to talk about some of the major political events of the week, including the government's decision to pause passenger flights from India and also escalating tensions with China again on display. But before we get to that, PK, first the blame game between the states and the federal government over hotel quarantine. It continues to rage as as the states continue to carry the burden of the inevitable outbreaks from hotel quarantine. We saw WA lift its three-day lockdown for Perth and the Peel region on Monday. But the Western Australian Premier, Mark McGowan, he came out all guns blazing nevertheless, calling on the federal government to take responsibility and to get people out of city hotels.
0: The Commonwealth does have facilities that were built for uh, these sorts of reasons. Now, I know the Commonwealth doesn't want to do it, and I've heard all the arguments, but basically they don't want to do it because it's risk. It's risk for them. Look, I understand that argument. I think they should be honest about it. Uh, It's risk for them. Uh, But if they're not prepared to do it, we'll just have to drop the number of returning people into Australia. And that will be sad for many families, but we can't go through these sorts of events. So uh, we'll drop the number. Um, We have to do that. Um, And I just urge the Commonwealth to stop letting people leave this country uh, to go to weddings uh, or other things overseas.
2: That's the Western Australian Premier, Mark McGowan, talking about the risk of all of this. And and PK, Mark McGowan copped a bit of criticism for shutting down the city of Perth for three days because of just one case of community spread. But I think there is an argument that's been there underlying for a while now about diversifying our quarantine response, isn't there? I mean, especially as we've seen a fair few more COVID-positive cases coming into our hotel quarantine now because people are coming from raging hotspots like India, Hotel quarantine has been incredibly successful and that's for the point the Prime Minister keeps making in its defence, but it is leaking. And Mm. the government wants to stay with hotel quarantine because, let's face it, that leaves that risk with the states. If they start to take control of things and open up defence bases and and things go awry, then the risk is directly back on them. Correct?
1: I think definitely it's a lot about risk. But, you know, if you flip that, read between the lines. Mark McGowan also doesn't want to bear the risk, he's admitting by saying. Well, he's copying it. yeah. Yeah. So no one wants the risk and that's because, get this... Uh, you know, revelation you've never heard before, um, sarcasm. COVID-19 is risky. It is incredibly, incredibly virulent. This is new strains. It's a a risky business. Of course it is. Now, we heard the New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian backing the Prime Minister essentially after McGowan's attempt to shift the blame or to sort of call for a change, saying that you need to expect these sorts of problems. You just can't halve your intake. So actually putting quite a bit of pressure also in saying that that's not acceptable for him to say that and do that. She said the New South Wales government can do hotel quarantine with much higher numbers of return travellers. And if you look at the core numbers, she's right. New South Wales has taken the majority. If you look at the comparisons between the states, that's a pretty compelling argument I thought that she made too. So, yes, absolutely. A diversification is where the conversation is at, I think, now. I think hotel quarantine isn't going to be shut down in the near future. If you've got New South Wales saying that they think it's a good, a decent model and it's working and we should expect some leakage, but that should be managed, which they've been doing, I think it's here to stay. The conversation, though, there will be more pressure on the federal government, and I think they will have to start submitting to some of that pressure, and I'll give you a real live example of how that's happening in real time. We're recording this on a Thursday morning. But Victoria's acting Premier, James Molino, has said the state is in detailed discussions with the federal government about a regional quarantine facility proposed in Mickleham. Now, Victoria wants the federal government to pay for the construction and to take ownership like Howard Springs. That's the case that they're making. And there's a reason for that again. Howard Springs is the best example of quarantining in the country. Right. It's been a very successful example. And we know why, because of the way it's actually built. It's not this high density model. It's, you know, there's outdoor spaces. The airborne transmission issue is dealt with better in that kind of context. The federal government's agreed to double its capacity, and that's a good thing, but you're going to need more options. So if the Victorian government is now in negotiations about how to do this, well, there you go. If they can force the government's hand to pay for some of this, I think we're going to see a bit of um, argy-bargy on that, I'm predicting. But if they can, then that's a secondary option. In the longer term, I think we're going to have to see more of these kinds of options being developed.
2: Yeah, I think that's right, because certainly while the vaccine rollout is patchy around the world, I mean, the longer countries, particularly developing countries with um, health systems that are compromised, aren't getting vaccinated, we're going to have hotspots, we're going to have breakouts, like we're seeing in India, like we're seeing in Turkey again, like Brazil remains in the middle of. And uh, that means to open our borders and allow people from these countries to go in, ultimately, we need a safer quarantine option, perhaps for a year or two or three years to come, and then others who know uh, these things, health experts say, we are in a new age of pandemics, so there will be more pandemics. So we may as well get organised now. But in terms of whether the federal government is going to step in, step up to the plate, help pay for these, help run them, no signs of that early on. I spoke to the federal treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, this morning, on the very morning that that announcement about the Victorian quarantine facility was made. He said he'd been in discussion with the state treasurer just a day or two ago and this wasn't raised. So certainly not leaping to the idea. But I think if states take the initiative, uh, we do need some more models. All right, the government doesn't want it to be in defence spaces. It doesn't want it to be in immigration centres in the middle of nowhere for practical reasons. I heard Jane Holton on your program talk about the practicalities of needing to be access to healthcare, for instance, and airports. But I do think this this should be a shared responsibility. Quarantine in our constitution, is a shared responsibility. The the, the federal government, just like the state governments, has some key responsibility for quarantine. And and
1: you've nailed it, Fran. This is now a long-term project. This isn't just crisis 2020. I mean, goodbye 2020. This is now our normal. Not new normal, just our normal. Our normal is that we have to live with a pandemic. Even when everyone's vaccinated, doesn't mean you won't transmit the virus. It doesn't mean we're not going to have to have a process for managing quarantining. And then, as you say, we may have more pandemics. It's frightening to think about, but that is the reality we live in. We need long-term solutions. And you can't just be city hotels forever, right? That might be part of the model, especially if you need to get this many Australians back home. Just think of the 9,000 Australians waiting in India at the moment. Uh, but that's that all right, desperate but also- to come back.
2: Let's not forget, city hotels worked because they were all empty, (laughs) because our borders were closed and so no one was coming to CBD. So all this hotel stock was just sitting there ready to go. As borders open, that will change too. So there'll be pressure on those places for a start. Already, we see governments making mistakes, state governments in the hotel quarantine regimes. Not all COVID positive or likely patients are collated on one floor. For instance, mask wearing is patchy. The advice from the expert panel is being criticised by... Health experts for not being updated. So there's already kind of flaws within it. And if we do get our borders open, you know, Godspeed, um, then there will be pressure on these places as well. So I think we are going to have to look at this realistically.
1: Okay, Fran, a lot going on. Everyone's blaming each other. Let's bring in our guest. We'll try not to blame him. No,
2: we're not blaming him. Let's do it.
1: Peter Harcher, political and international editor for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Welcome to the party room.
0: Thank you very much, Patricia.
2: Peter, let's talk first about the government's decision to pause the flights this week from India for a few weeks. On the one hand, we also made an announcement this week that uh, our Olympians will be able to jump the vaccine queue so they can leave the country safely to another hotspot, Japan. Uh, but in the meantime, we're leaving 9,000 Australians in India in what the Prime Minister described as a raging inferno of of this virus. Is this risk management appropriate and is it humane?
0: Well, if you look around the world, there's something like 20 countries that have shut access to India. So on that measure, it looks pretty reasonable. And if the advice is that this is an intense health risk and a, a brief pause on flights is necessary, well, so be it. The problem that I see with this is that been going on for a year now, and we do not yet have the best available quarantine system. The vaccine rollout, of course, is running way behind. And I think these are both symptoms of a government that, for some months now, has fallen into complacent mode on uh, the whole pandemic. I think... So Scott Morrison defends, as obviously, as you well know, defends the hotel quarantine system as 99.9% mm. effective. True. So there've only been 14 breaches into the community, but each of those, they're small frequency, but high cost. So mm. one breach shuts down a major city.
2: Shuts down a major blues festival.
0: Right. Well, that too. Yeah. yeah. But we've just seen Perth shut for three days over a single case. So, but there is a better way. And Scott Morrison said it himself yesterday when he was at the Howard Springs camp, where it's cabin based accommodation, there's zero breaches. So I think on this the opposition is right and the states are right and the federal government has just been too slow to move to... a the best available system.
2: And too slow too to bring people home. I mean, some of these people and, yes. you know, people are, I think I, I get a lot of feedback from this on the program about people angry that people have been allowed to go to India and are now stuck there. But a lot of those people have been trying to get home for some time now as they have from other places. Yes. And the government, I mean, it has been a slow repatriation for a lot of people. Could, yes. could our government have done more?
0: Absolutely. If you had the best available quarantining system, then you could have a much faster rate of incoming arrivals. So one follows the other. So by refusing to move to what is clearly a better system, the federal government has slowed the pace of returns. I mean, okay, credit due, more than 400,000 Australians have been successfully repatriated since the pandemic started. That's a got Yeah, it's it's a good job. But there's still 40,000 stuck abroad, including almost a quarter of those are in India. They're Australian citizens. Why is it taking so long? Again, I think this is a a part of the same syndrome. When the, the federal government decided that the worst of the crisis had passed, that it had both the public health and economic responses pretty much under control, I think they've gone into complacency mode. And another indicator of that, why has it taken until now to get work started on an Australian manufacturing capability mm. for mRNA vaccines, which we're going to need to deal with variations or variants on the virus. All of these are just really go slow, and I think it and all being comes made out by of that the same states symptom. In the end, I mean, yeah. the states
2: leading on yeah, the MRA, the exactly. states leading on a, on an external quarantine new setup.
0: Exactly. So this shows that it's not a necessary slowness. It shows it's a political choice. And that choice, I think, stems from complacency.
1: I've got to just quiz you on what you mean by political choice, because if it's a political choice, it's not a very smart one, is it? If they're going to be sort of in an election mode, the government wants to demonstrate, does it not, that it's had a roll gold standard for how to manage this pandemic, why would they be dragging their feet on this?
0: I agree with you. It's not smart at all. Uh, But the answer I can only assume is the same answer as to why the federal government Scott Morrison completely failed to respond to Australia's bushfire emergency. There is a reluctance to mobilise, there's a stubbornness about this government and even the COVID response, I mean, I think the reason that the government was quick off the mark on COVID is because it wasn't, they didn't have a choice. It wasn't a political decision. Under the Biosecurity Act, it's the chief medical officer, who then was Brendan Murphy, who advises the government that he is invoking the act He told Hunt, Hunt told Morrison, the act is invoked, and action must follow under the law. So the government didn't have a choice on that one. But everything else, I mean, these crises come upon it. The problem with respect for women and justice for women is another example. Crises come upon this government, and there's a stubbornness. There's a reluctance to adjust... The plan to circumstances and I think we see it again and again and now we see it manifesting in this sort of second phase, if you like, of the COVID pandemic.
2: What we're seeing again now is another outbreak of hostilities with China. On Sunday we had the Defence Minister Peter Dutton, new in the job, told Insiders we can't discount a war between the US and China over Taiwan ramping up earlier than people have been anticipating. Okay, perhaps that's fair enough. Then we got the Home Affairs Secretary, Michael Pizzullo, warning staff of the department that the drums of war are beating louder and getting ready to send off yet again our warriors to fight. That was the kind of talk. Was this orchestrated, do you think, in any way? They, these two had worked together in Home Affairs. Uh, Labor says this kind of language from Mike Pizzullo, that the drums of war language is just not appropriate. Not smart.
0: Well, to answer your question, I'm not sure if it was coordinated. I haven't asked either of them, but it's a good question.
2: I haven't either.
0: Was it it smart? Well, look, there's obviously some posturing going on. Pizzullo made sure that speech was distributed, so he was happy for it to go public. Uh, Labour has said it was a job application because he wants to move with Peter Dutton to become the Secretary for the Defence Department.
2: If it was that, I'm not sure it was a smart one.
0: Well, not necessarily, but it was. So, look, I think there was certainly an element of Deliberate posturing by a public servant who's very public servants are very conscious of what they say publicly and they do it rarely mm. and they do it deliberately. So there was posturing. But look, anybody who thinks that these two are in somehow overstepping the mark has never listened to the rhetoric that comes out of China. From the first month in which he was made president of China, Xi Jinping has visited military bases and he visits them all the time, all of China's military bases, all the time. And what he says, he uses the same phrase, he rallies the troops in front of him and he says, prepare to fight to win. And this is the rhetoric, we're going to fight and we're going to win wars. And uh, there's much more besides, much more besides. So to have one a new defence minister here saying, don't discount the possibility of a Taiwan contingency, and over the Taiwan Straits, China is uh, mounting near daily incursions, both in the air and on the sea, uh, I think... That's entirely reasonable. And for Pazule to say what he said, a one off by a public servant, it's really small beer compared to the rhetoric coming out of China and the actions on the water and in the air around our region.
1: And then the Prime Minister also had a major defence spending announcement in the top end to facilitate training with the US. China was obviously going to notice all of the noise and the activity. There has been some commentary too from Chinese officials this week. One Chinese general said that Australia is not that strong, it's not that powerful. If it insists on intervening, it will only cause greater damage to Australia itself and that many people in Australia believe in white supremacy with the goal of a white-dominated world. I don't think this white supremacy is kind of a realistic goal really here? Is that what's going on here? Is that what the government's trying to pursue?
0: <laughs> well, uh, if it is, then nobody in Japan or India has got the mail, for example, because the first summit meeting of the Quad, which happened just last month, that involved the leaders of the US, Japan, India and Australia. Uh, last time I checked, neither India, India's Narendra Modi nor Japan's Yoshihide Suga were white. Uh, And yet they've been united in a common concern over China's aggression. And the Quad has had met at the summit level for the first time in direct response to Chinese aggression. So I don't think that's driven by white supremacy. Uh, That's just a little rhetorical touch up that Beijing likes to give Australia. And it's part of the theatrics to diminish, to dismiss, to deter uh, and to eat away at Australian resolve, but the Chinese government does that to everybody. But we shouldn't if, take it too personally.
2: I don't certainly don't want to dismiss our defence policy as theatrics, but if we're putting three-quarters of a billion dollars into upgrading training bases, fair enough, that's over a period of time, mm. but... You know, how realistic is the talk of, I know we're changing our posture to defending Australia, but is there something in what the general says in that sense, the Chinese general, in that Australia is a minnow? I mean, how realistic mm. the thought that we could defend Australia if it came to that against China? Uh,
0: well, on and,
2: that... And, and are you expecting to see a, a major injection of funds into defence?
0: Well, on that point, um, he's right. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think anybody in Australia is proposing uh, that Australia sail uh, into the South China Sea and wage war no, on, on China. No, but
2: defending at home.
0: It, but he is absolutely right. In the last decade, China has increased its defence budget by 76%, 26 consecutive years of increased defence spending. Against that, our great and powerful friend the US has actually cut its total defence outlays outlays in the decade by 10%. Australia, like uh, India or South Korea, is in the middle, around 30, I think Australia's 33% higher over the decade. Um, but nobody is matching the pace of the uh, expansion or modernization of China, which is why um, everybody, the, the four democratic leaders that I mentioned, the US, Japan, India, Australia, have come together in recognition that no one country can stand against the way China is currently armed and its, and its trajectory of development. I mean, it, it's cranking out... A new submarine every eighteen months. Our new submarines are going to come out. It's, it's a decade. Well, we don't know when they're going. To, we don't even know if <laughs> they're well, go ahead. That's right. they- even if even if they're proceeding, the first one's going to be more than a decade away. And they're cranking. They now have more submarines than the US. Seventy six submarines. So, are we in about to see a
2: major investment? Do you think then from Australian government on top of I think it's two hundred and forty billion already that's forecast? Yeah. Isn't
0: it? Well, well, they have, this government has already increased defence spending quite a bit. The procurement processes are completely embarrassing and an absolute Mm. bungle. I would expect that under Dutton, we will see... And Morrison, because Morrison's very motivated on this agenda too, very concerned about the China problem. We will see uh, bigger defence spending. I don't know if it's going to be in time for this budget, but I think we could and should expect that. And I think we could and should expect that uh, from... Well, the US is doing the same now, trying to make up lost ground, and everyone else in the region. Look, democracies don't want to have to go to war. Democracies don't want to have to take on this authoritarian great power. Mm. China's aggression is forcing everybody in the region and beyond. I mean, the EU has now described China as a systemic competitor. Uh, The Brits are sending an aircraft carrier back into the Pacific. Um, The whole world is now concerned about China and countries everywhere are responding one way or another.
1: Look, I want to change the topic if we can to another sort of moment this week which I thought was significant. Peter an address at a Christian convention has put the spotlight on Prime Minister Scott Morrison's evangelical faith this week, raising questions about how much his faith influences him, his government, his policy decisions, the way he interacts with it. Let's take a listen.
0: I've been in evacuation centres since- When people thought I was just giving someone a hug and I was praying and putting my hands on people in various places, laying hands on them and
1: praying in various situations. So Scott Morrison there speaking at the Australian Christian Convention on the Gold Coast over the weekend. Faith, we know, is obviously a very personal issue. Every person in this country has a right um, to adhere to their own values and their own faith. But the way that faith influences a politician and the way that that they're held to account for that influence and and to explain it, I do think matters and is interesting. What are your reflections, Peter, on this speech itself, uh, the way the Prime Minister frames his faith? Do we know enough yet about the way it influences him?
0: Well, he's told us, well, first of all, the speech uh, was to, you know, it was to fellow believers. Um, I think that's perfectly fine and reasonable, in fact, normal, uh, that he might talk about how his faith affects his life, but people of faith everywhere do that all the time. Um, He doesn't parade it um, publicly very much. There was the famous and rare occasions where he allows cameras into the Hillsong Church where he worships. Uh, But he doesn't, he doesn't parade it. Um, He said he doesn't run it through the cabinet agenda. Uh, He has said in that clip you just played, Patricia, he has said that he prays for people and what looks like a hug is a laying on of hands, not just a hug. Well, you know, some people, some people might find that objectionable. I think most people would take that as an extension of his expression of concern that maybe makes it more heartfelt than just a A secular hug, if you like.
2: Do you? I mean, I was really surprised to hear that, and it just seemed quite an admission to me, the Prime Minister saying that when he goes to a disaster, you know, evacuation centre or something, he's hugging people. I mean, it's great that he's hugging people, but he's actually laying hands on them. Mm. Um, It just surprised me. Mm. And then we had Kevin Rudd on 7.30 this week, who's, you know, also a religious, very religious leader, who in fact gave speeches laying out how his religious beliefs, his Christian beliefs, Uh, would impact his policy in areas like the environment, for instance, and social justice. He's calling on Scott Morrison to do something similar. But he said that, you know, claiming a divine mandate to lay your hands on people is way in excess of your mandate as the secular prime minister of this country. I wonder whether a lot of people wouldn't think that was true.
0: I'd say, uh, first, Kevin is is pretty good at Holding a grudge, and I
2: sure, of course, I'd, 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 yeah, I'd say yeah, that
0: that's powering that. Look, is this based on some malign impulse? No, no, it's no, it's it's well-meaning and and well-wishing, and
2: completely in line with his faith and beliefs.
0: Completely, it's, so it's an authentic personal expression of who he is and what he believes. And I think you know, most people, you know, if 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 Narendra Modi gives you a namaste, or someone else, if the Pope blesses you, or Even another secular leader makes an expression of faith. I don't think the public objects. I mean, most people in Australia are people of faith, or at least they tell the the census collectors that they have a faith of one type or another. It's a well-meaning, genuine expression of belief. And he doesn't go around saying it to people. Um, He doesn't, when he's in evacuation centres, he doesn't ask them to get down on the knees and pray with him. Uh, it's quiet, it's personal and it's unobtrusive. I think it's completely unobjectionable and I think Kevin's getting a little bit overexcited on that one.
1: <laughs> sure, but, you know, let's not... There are some some historical facts. Uh, the Prime Minister, when the same-sex marriage vote happened in the Parliament, did not vote. Um, his electorate voted yes. He did not vote yes in the Parliament. Um one draws some lines and, and uh, you know, Peter, like clearly that's mm. because of his religious views, but mm. didn't represent his electorate. I just think he should be called out for that. Uh, that's something that actually happened on the floor of the parliament.
0: That's true. Was it a party line vote or was it a conscience vote? It,
1: absolutely a conscience vote, but it's also, so it was we, they also imposed a postal survey on Australia, which caused a lot of hurt to many people and then didn't vote with his electorate. So, you know, that's where clearly his own views because of his religious conviction is very much influencing his political behaviour.
0: Well, that's absolutely right. But if it's a conscience vote, then he's, that is exactly the circumstances where he's allowed to be guided by his conscience and that in his case is guided by his faith. I, I think that is the whole point of that type of vote. Again, um, look... I thought that the um, same sex marriage proposal was un- completely, you know, it was past time. It was the right thing to do. But it's a conscience vote, and not all legislators have to line up and vote in you know, a conscience vote the way you or I may think they should, Patricia. So, mm. uh, again, it's a conscience vote designed for that.
1: Yeah, look, you're right, but anyway, we're getting into the weeds. But ultimately, <laughs> we are. But but it might be interesting to people. Yes, you're right; it is a conscience vote. But they also uh, imposed a vote for the nation mm. to get it involved to in, and that made it. Though. Yeah, but but I do think when you force or, or, or suggest that people vote in a national vote. And then it becomes a conscience vote. That itself, to me, was an incoherent, an Yeah, incoherent sure. way Was it compulsory?
0: Forward. Was the postal vote... It was uh, not
1: compulsory, but they wanted an indication of how people felt. And then it was a conscience vote. Yeah, Seems well, it was, to me it
2: was incoherent. That's true. I agree with you. Um... But I, I guess the way he voted was not surprising given, I mean, that was completely authentic with his faith. And that's the point that Kevin Rudd is saying, that he reckons that, that Scott Morrison should be a lot clearer about espousing the impact of his religious belief on his political practice. Mm. But anyway, I think we, we better move on because we're almost out of time. Peter, the Prime Minister... We'll meet with former Liberal staffer Brittany Higgins this week, as will Anthony Albanese, separate meetings, of course. Um, it's more than two months now since Brittany Higgins made went public with the allegation of being raped by a Liberal staffer in Parliament House in a Cabinet Minister's office, in fact, back in 2019. Two months is a long time mm. to have a meeting about this, isn't it?
0: Well, uh, What does t- it
2: say about how he's prioritising this?
0: Well, he's never taken it seriously. He's assumed from day one that this was just another... Uh, daily event mm. on the news agenda, it would come and go and he would get back to what he wants to talk about back on his own agenda, which is about economic strength, tax cuts, um, managing COVID and national security. This is the stuff that he thought would be dominating the agenda. He was wrong, he completely miscalculated. Um, once again, we see this reluctance, the stubbornness about changing the plan to adjust to crisis, in this case, um, you know, a very powerful and important upswelling of public opinion. It wasn't just an isolated case. We're talking about um, a national—it's uh, it's a social, political movement really that's sprung up out of this. So I just think it was a failure of leadership, um, as well as a failure of empathy and a failure of comprehension. And it's not going away. And he's paying a political price for that.
1: It's certainly not going away. Uh, you're right. It has it has led to a movement, and so many people are now engaged in this issue. Hey, Peter. Finally, something on the on the issue of women. It's not the same story, but but sort of, you know, linked in some way. Um, Federal Liberal MP Andrew Lamming has appeared back in the spotlight after taking medical leave last month to undergo empathy training. I spoke to him. <laughs> <laughs> on our, it's funny every time the word empathy training, isn't it? It is funny.
2: <laughs> funny every notion? time.
1: Well, I spoke to him on R and drive last night because he's been diagnosed with ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, which he says he didn't know was an adult condition. He now knows and he's been diagnosed with it. And I think that's a good thing, can I just say. But there are questions about, well, does that how does that link to this behaviour? He says it doesn't excuse the behaviour, but clearly he believes that it explains some of the behaviour. He, he was, he ended up hanging up on me, essentially, in the interview.
2: Well, I heard that interview, Pika. He basically denied some of the behaviour, the allegations. He said it wasn't true. and not, not, not just talking about within his diagnosis. He was just saying, well, that didn't happen. That's not true.
1: Yeah, that's pretty much what happened. For what do you think, Peter?
0: I liked Bill Shorten's line about uh, Andrew Lemming's uh, being sent for empathy training by the Prime Minister. He said, being sent on a training course on how to impersonate being a human being. Look, I think the whole thing is pathetic. In any other circumstance, in any other government, he would have been sent to the crossbench uh, on day one. You cannot harass your own mm. uh, constituents and get away with that. Um, it's, again, look... I know that the guys, uh, the government is is down to its last uh, man or woman. That anyone moving to the crossbench or quitting the party puts the government in a minority. But I think there might be worse fates than operating a minority government, uh, particularly given that they weren't going to they weren't standing to lose any votes of confidence or supply. And I think a worse fate than running a minority government is accepting these uh, disgraceful ethical and just human uh, behaviours. And if we're examining Scott Morrison's consistency of behaviour with his faith where it's allowed to operate on matters of judgement and conscience, this is one where maybe it should have been allowed to operate and Andrew Lemming should have been sent to the backbench from day one on any standard, whether Mm. it's political, whether it's human, whether it's legal standards about harassment of, of your constituents, much less anybody else, or whether it's Christian on any of those tests, I think the Prime Minister uh, has accepted a very, very low standard, and he really shouldn't have.
2: And on the standard whether he's human, I guess we have to agree he is, but <laughs> there is a, a whole other well, debate the about signs
0: that. signs are there, yes.
2: <laughs> Peter, on that note, thank you very much for joining us again on The Party Room. <laughs> Pleasure, Fran. See ya.
0: <laughs> See you, Patricia. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you. And, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. Yeah.
1: The bells are ringing. That means it's time for question time. And this week's question comes from Nikita, who asks, do you think we will ever see a three-party system with the Greens rising to the position of a major party?
2: Frank? Well, I think actually we've gone backwards on that front. I think we're a long way from it. I think there were moments where the Greens thought they were going to break through. Before that, it was the Australian Democrats. And then we've, you know, it, it slips back. And this, the pandemic, I think, has entrenched the two-party system for the next election anyway. So I can't see it for a long, long time. Um, perhaps over time, yes, other countries manage with different coalition governments and to get stability. And there's a lot of people who think that brings more diverse thought and Opinion and representation into the legislating, the decision making of, of our parliament. But I, I think it's a
1: long way off. What about you? Oh, I completely agree with you. I have nothing to add because you, you nailed it. That's exactly the trend we're seeing. But, you know, you never say never, but n- not in the short term, that's for sure. Keep sending your questions in. We love pondering all of your questions. You can tweet using the hashtag the party room or email your questions to room at abc.net.au. Follow The Party Room on the ABC Listen app on your favourite podcast app, wherever you find it, which is called The Party Room. Tell people, spread the news, people. Spread
2: the news. That's it from us this week. One more week before Budget Week. We'll be there back in your feeds next week and then, of course, with a super-duper offering from the party room during Budget Week. We
1: sure will. See you, Fran. See you, PK.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC
2: Listen app.